Hello and welcome to season six of Captain's Corner. We'd like to take a moment to let you know how grateful we are to you, our listeners, for making this podcast such a success. We have a great lineup of guests for you to enjoy during season six. So we ask you to share this podcast on your social media with your friends and family. And of course, give us a like and leave a review. We hope you guys enjoy the season. Today on the podcast, we have Mark Reidenauer from the Chicago Symphony. Hi, friends. Thanks for checking out this sixth season of Captain's Corner. We've had a great time with our conversations with Tony and Lauren Dungy, to the national leaders of the Salvation Army, to conversations about theology and biblical studies. And now we're ending with a musical postlude with my conversation with Mark Ridenauer of the Chicago Symphony. This is a little outside of what we would normally do. We learn about Mark's history and where he's been and music making and pursuing excellence. I think you'll find it interesting. But this is the last episode for the season, particularly as I start to go in just about a week and a half into the busyness of the Salvation Army's Christmas season. I anticipate that the seventh season of Captain's Corner will be published at the end of January. If you have appreciated this, it would mean a lot to us, and it would help us if you were able to review this podcast on Apple's iTunes. Could you do that just now? Could you go there and just give us a five-star rating? That would help us get to more people through the ministry of this podcast. Also, when you share online via social media, that helps expand as well. I'm, I'm able to track that just to see like what people are able to do when they share a link to this podcast. So for instance, on this episode, if there are like trumpet websites or music websites or Salvation Army Band websites, that might be interesting, like a place for you to share. That would help expand the impact of this. So thanks for doing that. And thanks to all those who've given us feedback. If you have ideas of people who you think would be good for me to interview or concepts you'd like to throw past us, well, I would love to hear those. So please reach out to me. I have a Salvation Army email address. I think most of the people who listen to this podcast probably can find me. So thanks again for your support and your interest in Captain's Corner. Well, welcome to Captain's Corner, Captain Andy Miller, coming to you not from Tampa, Florida, but I am in Quincy, Illinois, and believe it or not, I am looking over the Mississippi River, and the sun is setting right before me, and I am with my friend, Mark Reidenauer, who is a trumpet player with the Chicago Symphony. Mark, welcome to Captain's Corner. Thanks, Andy. Uh, Mark and I are sitting here, and we are literally watching the sun set over the Mississippi River. It's a beautiful sight, and I imagine that that sunset is something that might even inspire our conversation a bit as we talk about music and the way God's used it in his life. Mark, I'd love to just hear like a little bit of how, like you didn't just imagine, and I know your story enough, and we are, we're here because we're both in town for my parents' retirement after 43 years of Salvation Army officership, and Mark is like basically like a family member of mine, adoptive family member. So I know a bit of his story, but I really want to, share his story with my listeners. So, Mark, when you were growing up on a farm in western Pennsylvania, I don't think you were thinking, you know what, I want to be playing with some of the greatest musicians ever, and I want to play in Chicago Symphony. Was that what you felt like your plan was? I don't think that was my plan even after going to school and uh, even playing in a few orchestras at the beginning. Hmm. I was more, uh, actually, at that time, I had no clue what I wanted to do. Wow. And it it kind of, um, my call actually started when, uh, well, first of all, going back to um, when I was a kid, uh, 
Yeah. My uh, introduction to actually Asbury College uh, came at a Methodist camp meeting in Western Pennsylvania, Cherry Run. Very famous camp meeting. Which always had, seemed to always have Asbury professors yeah. preach at. Like uh, Dr. Kinlaw or who else? I don't remember if Dr. Kinlaw was there. Dr. Neff. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, Dr. Coker. Yeah. One of my favorites. Um, and I'm sure there were other ones. Uh, even, uh, I even had a connection to um, Roger Blackburn, who was the fourth trumpet in Philadelphia at the time. His grandfather was a an evangelist. Hmm. Um, and... He was at Cherry Run. I think it was my um, sophomore or junior year in high school. And Roger actually drove over from Philadelphia to visit with his grandparents while he was there and played in the church band. Okay. In the evening meetings for a couple of days that week. And at that point, I wasn't even thinking about being a trumpet player. You were playing trumpet in high school? Yes. Basically. Your mom's a good musician, piano player. Yes. So, but it wasn't necessarily like a career type of thing for you. But I got introduced to Asbury there. Yeah. And then um, it was actually the only place I applied for. Okay. And I was in- intending to be uh, a vocal major, except. Oh, interesting. You knew this. <laughs> hey, I, well, I'm, 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 I'm entering into the seat of the listener. Right. But anyway, <laughs> after I. After I auditioned for the voice faculty, um, mainly Jack Rains, um, who quickly put a put a damper on my plan to be a singer, um, I was at a crisis point. And mm. in the end, uh, that very night after I was squashed wow. uh, in the vocal department, my devotions happened to be the uh, from the end of the ninth chapter of first corinthians hmm. where paul talks about um athletic endeavors and training your body hmm. to be a winner not hmm. to lose right and at that moment i knew exactly what i had to do and so the next day i had an audition with jim kerno yeah and after that, um, it was like I was immediately put to the, put into the band, into the uh, trumpet major. Okay. I don't even think I asked to do that. <laughs> you will do this. He Jim. put me in there, and I was playing in the stage band from day one. Mm-hmm. I was playing in every ensemble, although I, actually I didn't play in the brass choir. He didn't want to overload me, hmm. but at that point... Um, and from that day on, I knew that it was going to take a lot of work and a lot of discipline. And I started essentially practicing four hours a day Wow! from that day. And that went on essentially th- my four years of Asbury and my four years in grad school. Wow. So while you're there, I remember hearing a story that you were, you know, the, Jim Kerno brought in a um, trumpet teacher for you and probably a few other students. And um, 
you and your trumpet teacher auditioned for the Lexington Philharmonic. <laughs> and you actually won a job while you were a student at Asbury, an yes. undergraduate student, and you beat your teacher. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> he was a very, very knowledgeable man about right. about playing, but didn't have really have the physical features in his face. Mm-hmm to necessarily be the best player mm-hmm. and he he was actually from cincinnati so that created a, a connection with that area of the country oh, interesting. in and i think he was probably the one that encouraged me to apply to ccm for grad school now at this point are you beginning to think about it as a career playing your horn as a I had no, and I don't think anybody back at that point really had any idea about playing. I was certainly, I don't know about anybody else, but I was certainly unaware of the opportunities. Um, and again, you grew up on a farm, like what was what, your dad farm? Or? Well, my dad actually did a lot of things, but when I went to school, he, he was a coal miner. Okay, interesting. Uh I grew up outside of Pittsburgh. I've never heard the Pittsburgh Symphony. Huh. Um, it was not... I mean, in the summertime, there was mostly, you know, work for the 12 hours of daylight, and then you <laughs> slept the rest of the time. Wow. So Roger Blackburn's pretty well it, like, the, as far as, like, high-quality trumpet And I don't think... Yeah, I don't think I ever r- realized at the time, or even afterwards what he was doing interesting provenient grace uh yeah and so literally i mean um people talk about callings and it's not just to spiritual ministry but it's to other things and i mean i can't explain a lot of the 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 opportunities that have happened in my life other than it was a it was a call. It was a promotion. It was yeah, um, s- something of God because I assume I was faithful. Yeah. So let's um, Silla Asbury though. That's a very another very important thing happened. You met Linda Loman, right? Yeah. So that then also made it easier for you to be probably be connected to the Salvation Army as Linda is an officer's kid who came to Asbury and. You got so. Tell me about how you got involved with the army. But the army came first before oh, did it? before Linda. Okay. Um, See, I'm learning something here, Mark. It was um, actually my first year at Asbury. The top trumpet player in the school played soprano in the in the so in the SASF band, and so when he graduated. Um, uh, Kerno needed somebody else to play soprano and I was elected <laughs> and so um, that first year let's see I played in the band that first year I believe the end of my second year we we did a trip in the spring to St. Louis, and I'm trying to remember the name of the youth, the DYS 
Um, oh, Denny Phillips. Denny Phillips, yes. yes. When we, at the end, on Sunday morning before the last meeting we played, um, Captain Phillips came up to me and said, Mark, I, I have some some forms for you to sign. I, I And he covered up all the text. No. So it was just a line at the bottom, you know, name. And I had no clue what was going on, so he... He had me sign these. I signed them. And then in the meeting, I was enrolled in a hearing. Oh, wow. I had no clue what was going on. <laughs> Hopefully you believed all the things you signed. Yeah. I had no idea what I signed, so I had no idea. <laughs> um, but anyway. This is not the recommended way for people to become no. adherents and soldiers in the Salvation Army. Just no. verifying that. So, and then uh, the next, uh, actually, um in the spring of my junior year was when we recorded the Marching to Glory album. Okay. Great Salvation War. Great Salvation War, yes. Celebration. Guard Way. Yeah. We recorded that in the chapel at Camp Swanecki, mm-hmm. north of Cincinnati, on our way to Kansas City to the National Congress, where the SAF, SASF band made a huge splash that is a legendary piece too i've heard this from other people that how well the band played there not not just that piece but yeah um and i've had conversations with a lot of people from the new york step band chicago step band since then and most of their most of the people had an attitude well, what's this young yeah sure youth sure. band ha huh. Uh, got to do here, and I I think we kind of blew a lot of people out of the water on that one. Hmm. It was, and it was, it was a a great group. We had a great leader, but but even that trip that we made, well, the recording and then the trip that we we made, the stops we made on the way to Kansas City, brought us really close together. So it was a very emotionally spiritually tight group Mm -hmm. and um music is in its essence um of course sound and everything else like that but at its core it has to be um spiritual at least what in the army it has to be spiritual but it has to be emotional right and that is an aspect that our band, I think, had over every other band. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, I'm not sure about anybody else, but uh, a lot of us were poor, mm-hmm. <laughs> literally. Mm-hmm. And um, there, was, there was an element of uh, spiritual dependence that we had at that point mm-hmm. that a staff band probably didn't mm-hmm, mm-hmm. being so close together and and um, and you're also all students together we were, you had you went to chapel three times a week yeah. together you had all these things and other trips so it was this little this this period of your life that kind of connected you to the army and its mission too yes like, like it almost be hard for you to to leave after that, after that rich experience that was musical, that was spiritual. I never thought about leaving. I didn't suggest you did. Uh, but it was it was a little bit before that when uh, 
I'm just saying you're in. Like you're really like kind yes. of it hooked you. Um, that I met Linda. Actually, the first okay. time, the first time that we connected actually was on a stage band and brass choir tour in the spring of 78 I believe mm -hmm. we went we actually um, played at my home church in Pennsylvania okay and we also played in Philadelphia during the spring break tour and Linda was in in the audience for one of those okay one of those um, concerts in Philly and uh, she later relayed that <laughs> tidbit to me. And then the second time uh, that she says that she noticed me was when we did a, the stage band played at um, the Wilmore Methodist Church. And Kerno had arranged a, I can't remember uh, who did it originally. Um, an arrangement in of in the image of God. Okay. Um, for a, a trumpet player that had done a lot of church music in the sixties and seventies, and um, she noticed me that night, and then um, it wasn't. I think it was actually the the spring tour in our junior year uh, that. We went to a youth councils. I think it was a KT youth councils in Gatlinburg, and um, we actually sat on the bus together for some odd reason. I don't know. Hey, convenient grace, and the rest is history. Okay, so you and Linda get together. You guys get married right after you right graduate after school, and then you go to Cincinnati. And you do your masters there, and you you study with a famous teacher there, right? At, I, well, Maria. My, my my main teacher was Eugene Blee. Oh, that's it. That's he it. was um, actually uh, the the principal in Cincinnati from the mid fifties through the mid seventies, and then he he stepped down and played third uh, until he retired. I think in the two thousand early two thousands. Hmm. Um, I was also uh, actually let me finish the Gene Bleed oh. story. He was he was a student of the previous principal who Fritz Reiner brought to Cincinnati in the thirties. Wow. To play principal in Cincinnati. His name was Henry Volgamuth. There you go. He also happened to study with uh, a cornet player in the area by the name of Frank Simon. And there are many Frank uh, Actually, Frank Simon was a student of Herbert L. Clark. Oh, my goodness. Um, so my teacher had a, a really cool musical trumpet legacy from both cornet players and orchestra trumpet players. So uh, the other teacher at, at CCM at the time was Marie Speziali. Uh, and I had a few lessons with her, but... Um, my main teacher was Gene Blee. Okay. And I also studied with Phil Collins, who was then the principal in Cincinnati. Not to be confused with the pop musician. Not the Phil Collins. Right. But 
No. Phil Collins. Well known in the brass world. So you, you're there and you play, you know, in Cincinnati in that world, but then you get a job in Memphis. I'm going to fast forward a little bit. You correct me if I get this wrong. And then you get the job with the Florida Orchestra, which many of our listeners will know the Florida Orchestra well, where you're the principal trumpet there. And a member of the Tampa Corps, you and Linda, your kids were born there. Then you make your way. You win the kind of dream job, so to speak. Major orchestra, one of the top five orchestras in the world, Chicago Symphony. And not one that I was necessarily gunning for. Okay. it's pretty. You're pretty young when that happened, right? How old were you? 35. I was 35. pretty old. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably one of the older ones to have gotten in the orchestra. Most, hmm. most people get in in their late 20s. Huh. Mid thirties, forties. Uh, there are a couple of people in their forties that got in. It's unusual for somebody as old as I was hmm. to get in. But um, I, my dream job would have been playing in New York with Phil Smith. Okay. And I did have that opportunity a couple of years earlier uh, than the Chicago edition when um, Johnny Ware retired. He was the assist the co-principal in new york mm -hmm. um they had uh well the first audition they had um i couldn't go to and so and the the person that they picked at that audition they ended up not giving a contract to so they had a second audition and i went to that one the the fall of of 89 mm -hmm. and I won that audition. Actually, I think I had to have Phil Collins, even at that point, I had to have Phil Collins call Phil Smith and get me into that audition, mm. even though I had a position. But in any case, I won that audition and went to play with the Philharmonic for a couple of weeks in early January of 90. And uh, I guess it was not supposed to be because... Um, I got a call from from Zubin Mehta, the music director, uh, a week after I got back home, and he said that he would have hired me, but I needed unanimous consent from the committee, and I didn't get it. Hmm. That would have been a dream job, and uh, unfortunately for the Philharmonic, that position that I auditioned for has kind of been a revolving chair. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, they've had... Since I've been in Chicago, they've had three or four different people hmm. in that position. Um, but unbeknownst to me, I, I, uh, God had a, a plan, and in the end, it was a much better plan than I would have conceived because Amen. I got to play with the, the greatest orchestra trumpet in the world. And probably of all time at this point. And that's Adolph Bud Herseth. Bud Herseth. Yeah, right. And I learned a tremendous amount of uh, information about interpretation, of, uh, about what is just possible to do on, it, on the trumpet. And I never, up until that point, I had never encountered anybody that could do what he could do. Wow. Um, it was, it was normal 
for me to pick my jaw off the floor in, in rehearsals or <laughs> concerts because I could not believe what I had just heard. And this is even at the tail end of his career. Like, he's kind of at the... I mean, he still was... I'm not saying... He was 74 when I joined the wow. orchestra. So I got to play with him for seven years, and I've never... I mean, there are still things today that I am trying to figure out how he did. Wow. How he how he could get a sound, how, how he could um, uh, shape a phrase, how he could play so soft. Although there are there are things that I think I I learned how to do that he could do, but he was such a once in a century kind of player that um, I was just fortunate to to be able to play with him to learn because to me there are a lot of there are a lot of really good players out there but when you think about it most of the good players are always the best players wherever they are hmm. even from grade school or junior high band or whatever and as they get better as they uh, sorry as they get older they're always the best players mm-hmm. and and usually they don't ever get to set sit in a in a ensemble or in a section with somebody that is uh somebody like bud and so i i uh was in an unusual situation because i got to learn from the best and mm. unfortunately um a lot of players who had who were of of my age or before only had the recordings of bud or right, some live recordings right. of him famous recordings from to to listen to and and you can't learn i mean you can learn something from recordings but it's different than sitting beside somebody watching him breathe and like how he thinks through things and you can Uh, ask him what do you do his sound concept um it's i mean i think a lot of people have been trying to explain just what are the characteristics of his sound and most people end up doing that through the prism of their own experience wow this has a lot of ramifications for other areas of life yeah and and because i was there and i had the attitude i'm just gonna see if i can do learn how to play like he does Okay, let me stop you. So this is like really key, what, like what you're describing here for other areas of life. Because here you are, you're, are, you've already been at this point, like 1994, this is 1994, 95. You've already been a professional trumpet player for like 15 years. And you're yes. like, I had heard your album, which I still love, By the River. Um, like, you, like, but what you're describing is like, by that point, you had so much more to learn. Now that goes against the, the trumpet player's handshake, which is high. I'm better than you, you know, that, that handshake. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to put yourself in a position where you're, you, you have to say, I don't know something and I want to be a learner. Um, and, and I've heard you talk about this before. And I, I had the privilege to like, you know, be with you every Sunday and, and Wednesday and other points. And like our families shared many meals together and you would talk about, yeah, I had, um, Schulte and, and he said this to me and you, Barenboom and piano players, uh, all sorts of people that come through. I mean, just a minute ago, you were talking to me about a half an hour conversation you had with John Williams. I mean, is that part of 
I don't want to say your success or your effectiveness is your willingness to learn? Uh, anybody who thinks that they don't have anything more to learn uh, before they die, <laughs> uh, I, I think is a little short-sighted. I mean, but even, even as a professional player, I mean, like, yeah, how, I, it's maybe I should say it's not usual for professionals once they are in uh, big orchestras to continue mm. to wow. learn. Wow. And uh, you get tenure, right? Eventually, once you get tenure, after usually it's a two year period. Once you get tenure, you're essentially there until you retire. And a lot of people approach their post tenure time as just trying to maintain. Mm. But Bud always used to say, uh, Bud. Uh, that was something that Bud said all the time that he tries to learn something new every week. Wow. Every month. Uh, th th he had, and he had a, a blue, little blue five ring binder that he used to take notes on. I've never been able to see it. Um, he would talk to me about it. Um, he used to, and I can't give you any specifics, but he used to listen in the 50s he started in 1948 he would listen uh, beginning in the early 50s to the radio broadcast of the concerts that were on wfmt on sunday afternoons and he would compare those the the radio broadcast to concerts that we did of that the three concerts or four concerts we did of that of that show he would do something different on every show Interesting. and write it down and then he would listen on the radio broadcast to figure out then what show it was and which one he did and then he would make notes about a particular mute that he used on a certain muted passage or a mouthpiece or an instrument and that that is how he i think developed into such a great player i don't think i've ever met a trumpet player who who put in the time to learn all of those specific things that he that made up Bud Herseth, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and that carried uh, carried through with me. He he always said, "You gotta you gotta keep learning. If you're not moving upward, then you're moving down. Mm -hmm. You're getting worse. There's no such thing as a plateau." Wow. And so he literally he was trying to get better right up until the point uh, actually I sh maybe I shouldn't say that he continued to practice after he retired wow he would play a couple hours a day after he retired I've heard some people who at their last concert they put their horn away and they don't ever play again so like, it's just interesting like he, he was so committed to the art I hope we can get to a place where it's like that y we can even just talk about the the pursuing excellence the pursuit of excellence and like how that's something that right and you see that very much in a spiritual capacity like in the, that was a part of your calling to be a professional trumpet player was that role um first corinthians 9 passage that led you there this episode of captain's corner is sponsored by arthur alley associated your partner for fundraising and mission development 
Led by longtime Salvation Army fundraisers Derek Alley and Steve Wakes Norris, Arthur Alley can help your nonprofit organization or church with services like mission planning, annual and capital campaign fundraising, and coaching. Arthur Alley has the experience and insight to help your organization thrive. They've worked with organizations across the country and specialize in serving the Salvation Army. And today, for Captain's Corner listeners, Arthur Alley is offering a free 20-minute consultation call. Brainstorm strategy, script an upcoming donor visit, talk through an advisory board issue, or ask questions you've been afraid to ask in public. It's entirely up to you. Visit ArthurAlley.com slash captain. That's Alley with two L's, ArthurAlley.com slash captain to set up your complimentary consultation call today. Now, just to give people an idea for the type of commitment um, that you have to playing across, I mean, it might be different through the years, but you know, throughout your trumpet career, how many hours a day do you practice on average? The eight years that I was in school, four hours a day. Okay. And then uh, once I had a job, that time decreased because of the the rigors of rehearsals and whatever else. When you take auditions, you have to find time, extra time, mm-hmm. to work on that stuff. Um, and I found probably the last 15 years or so that I don't practice as much. I don't, I, I've li- literally played most of the repertoire. Um, and I've learned uh, a very efficient way to practice so that I don't have to work a whole lot on a piece the second, third, or fourth time that, that I have to play it. Mm. And that is very uh, a very key component of being a professional, knowing how to practice efficiently and thoroughly right. without having to relearn every time you play Not just putting the hours in. It's like how you practice. Right. It's like and when I was in school, it was putting the hours in. Right, okay. If I had known what I know now, back then, um, I would be so much better now. Mm. Um, but I didn't, and it, it, it took years how to learn this. this is one of the things I, I think I, I didn't specifically learn, learn this from Bud, but um, when it comes, for instance, we used to play a lot of commissions, mm-hmm. maybe six or eight a year. And most of those are written so poorly for the instrument that you have to spend a lot of time working out oh, the sure. awkwardness like of Like in modern ball. music. Yes. Like, like really. And so um, I literally learned by doing that that I had to start off really slow and play it over and over and over and over again slowly until until I could almost do it from memory and then speeding it up to the to the required tempo didn't take very long and adding all the details that I need to do and then um, I literally I I wanted to be prepared to play it in concert perfection by the Tuesday rehearsal now I had colleagues that actually started on Tuesday mm. 
hoping to get it to concert perfection by Thursday night. Mm. And that's when you start. You normally have like a Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night concerts. That's Two, your... Back then, there was also Tuesday nights. Okay. So we played four concerts a week, sometimes a Sunday afternoon as well. Wow. So, so you, you had this. So the thing is, you're, you're putting in multiple hours thinking about practicing how you practice. There's as all of this as nurturing and stewarding the gift that God's given you, you know, for an ear, for a musicality, on trumpet, all these things, and then fitting in with the orchestra, leading a section, all these things are a part of what you had to do. And this has kind of like led you to have some pretty solid convictions about music making. I'd love to just hear some of those those things that, and, and, and you have your horn in your case here. Um, I'd love to pull it out too at some point and uh, maybe as a way to express some of that. Well, being a part of uh, one of the top three orchestras in the world, you get used to playing with some very, very serious musicians. And so that kind of keeps the pressure on you mm, mm -hmm. to not fall behind. And so with that comes the constant pursuit of excellence. And uh, as that applies to church music. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd like to get in that. You told me just a few minutes ago that you've been, the last few, last few months during COVID-19, you've practiced more hymns than anything, than, than any other point in your life. Like you, That is true. Although... Probably for the last six or eight years, yeah, I have been playing through hymn tunes, um, maybe even more than I've been practicing music that I need to play. Okay, you hear that? And listen, I, to that, folks, keep going. I think that one of the aspects of uh, brass musicians, uh, any any. Uh, instrumental musician is that we tend not to practice the simple things hmm. playing hymn tunes playing uh, melodies I mean for trumpet players uh, in the Arban book you have the art of the phrasing mm -hmm. uh, I don't know anybody I've never had students that play that at all hmm. In fact, even now at, at Roosevelt, I encourage my students to play hymn tunes because um, there's a certain, how should I say it? There's a certain lyricism that you can only learn how to do when you're playing melodies. Uh, one of the things that, that I always admired about but was his ability to infuse emotion into the sound that came out of his bell. He could never tell me how he did that. And I, I asked him on many occasions, how, do you, how did you do this? How did you mm. create that sound? And, and I just got to the point where I knew he was going to say, I don't know, or... <laughs> shrug his shoulders and look over his glasses and say, you know, it, it's up here. Hmm. Yeah. In the end, from a technical stand, from a technique standpoint, 
I think we were like polar opposites hmm. because he he one time told me that he allows his body to do whatever it wants in order to get the sound that he wants. Now, I'm the opposite because uh, years ago I blew out my chops uh, and literally could not play. Hmm. And one of the reasons why that happened was that I essentially kind of let my body do what it wanted to. And, um, and, and in the end, for everybody, this is probably some, everybody has a, a point somewhere between Bud and me on polar opposites. But I, I learned that I had, to, in order to achieve greater things, I had to learn to keep my technique very disciplined. Otherwise, I could develop bad, a bad habit again and then couldn't play. And when you got three concerts a week to play... Right, and three kids at home to... Yeah, you, don't, you can't afford stuff like that. So... Uh, I was just amazed at how Bud was able to create sounds, and it seemed to me that they were all infused with some kind of emotion. A mm -hmm. lot of times, he seemed to be very angry, and uh, th there are lots of stories of him th throughout his career uh, being angry. Uh, but in the end, it was it was that aspect of learning how to be how to infuse emotion into the sound, into the interpretation. Yeah. And, you know, the other, the other thing about trumpet players, uh, you know, you shook hands and say, I'm better than you. The other thing about trumpet players is that the common thing is, uh, you know, who can play higher, who can right. play the highest, who right. can play the fastest, how many notes you can play. In the end, I've come to realize that, I mean, people that can do that are a dime a dozen hmm. um years ago we played a brass concert and uh the uh, i believe it was the uh the foray pavan mm -hmm. and the melody i i was playing flugel on that piece and i had the melody and so after the concert i got a note uh, saying that essentially that melody that I played was so beautiful that it made this person cry right in the, right in the mm. concert. And at that point, I realized that is maybe the ultimate compliment that anybody mm. could mm -hmm. get. It's not about how many notes you can play or how fast you can play. But if you can... Connect with people. If you can emotionally connect... Yeah. with with the listener that melody that you're playing that's that's the most important thing and that's part of what you get get out of practicing hymn tunes is that it gives you it connects you to something that's has spiritual momentum or energy in it um I, i'm just guessing yes that. i mean uh, the the basic thing about hymn tunes is they have words mm -hmm. and to be actually to actually sing through those words as you're playing and to experience the emotion the the spiritual depth the doctrine through all of that mm -hmm. helps helps you i think to 
infuse something personal mm -hmm. that can touch the soul of the listener. Amen. And in the end, um, you know, that conversation I had with John Williams a couple of years ago about the With Malice Towards None solo from the Lincoln uh, film score, it's a very difficult piece to interpret. It's moderately difficult technique-wise, but it's awkward enough in its construction that it's uh, that it, it creates more difficulty trying to figure out how to phrase it, how to make it connect with the how to breathe. Yeah. yeah, and literally, I I practiced that solo many different ways for several months before mm. that concert knowing that that piece was very exposed and um, or the parts of the solo was really exposed this is from the the movie the kind of the well-known movie about lincoln that right. came out john williams did the music for it yeah and in the John's end solo. i mean I, I played that uh those sessions for that movie i think i played about 13 notes hmm. on that whole film score and chris martin played this solo um we were, I think, the whole orchestra was actually hoping for a Star Wars or a, <laughs> uh, Indiana yeah. Jones kind yeah. of film score with that with that movie, and that was like we, we got the total opposite. Very of reflective, oh. yeah, like emotional music. This is now you and I were talking today. I had the privilege, like I did for four, uh, five or six years, where I got a, you and I played right next to each other. I. I wish I could say that was like in the a real symphony, but it was in a Salvation brass band. And most of the time, you're conducting that. But but today we were uh, we were playing. I had and one of those, playing. What's that? Conducting and playing? And conducting and playing. and playing. I know. So that's why. So I I was really spoiled to hear you on my left, or now today it was on my right. But we I had one of those kind of mark moments where all of a sudden it was like a, the light bulb went on for me, and we were playing. And can it be at my parents' retirement? And you said, ah, oh, the problem is some people, they just push to the end of this ver of this chorus every time we get to it. And, and you said, we need, it's, we need to see it's where the theology comes in with its most poignancy that we need to slow down. We need to think about what's happening as we get to the end of this verse. Like so, so many times we just kind of push through, we get, get it done. Um, but, and this is kind of connected to that same idea as like, you, you want to make this emotional connection with people and that whenever people hear you play, that's obvious, like that comes through. And when I play, it's not so obvious. <laughs> or other people, like I want it to be the case, but I mean, I'm just like, th these are the type of things, the, these little differences that make your connection so strong. And that's what's been, I think, unique with your playing. Well, to that point, earlier we watched the sun go down. Right. Right? Yep. Um, and how much time did we did we look at that yeah probably just two or three minutes um but in the end in order to watch a sunset you have to commit some time to that because it doesn't have happen instantly right um in in the same kind of way there is uh, i think there is a pace of music that is absolutely perfect hmm when it comes to hymn tunes, um, different denominations have different traditions. Some really fast hymn tune singing, some overly slow and a lot in the middle. Um, 
But I think in the end, what I've come to discover is that um, there is a perfect tempo. Hmm. Um, I've also learned that uh, a lot in contemporary com uh, new commissions that we played, a lot of times composers um, put a metronome marking there um, at the beginning of the piece or, or in sections. And I always find that it's up to the conductor to figure out where that piece fits into the groove. Mm -hmm. It's almost always not the metronome mark. <laughs> and, I mean, literally, I tell my students all the time, when, when you're, for instance, when you're playing a solo, that's your opportunity to connect with your listener. You don't have to do it through a conductor or with other colleagues. And so you have license to figure out how that music fits in with your own being how how can you best express what you want to say how can you best express based on the uh, or with the the caveat of, of what the tempo is what the dynamics are how you how you temper the dynamics to what you want to say sometimes i find that um you know for instance a famous uh one of the probably one of the all-time best etudes ever written for trumpet, Charlier number two. Um, I don't play, most of the time, I don't play what's written there at all. Hmm. Because it, to me, it almost, a lot of times it goes opposite of what I think it should be. I want to play loud when it says soft. Hmm. Um, but I also have a program of how I want how I want this piece to be. It, it is clearly, um, if you know it, it's clearly um, organized. Uh, you have a prologue, mm -hmm. which, is, which is essentially the same as the epilogue at the end. If you think of it actually more like an opera mm -hmm. or, uh, or a play, I actually almost, uh, it's, the easiest thing is for me is to think about the prologue and the epilogue of the Romeo and Juliet mm -hmm. play. The prologue tells you what's going to happen. Yep. The epilogue kind of describes the emotion of what you what you just experienced. And then in, in the middle of the Charlet, then you have, I think there's four or five sections where they're almost unrelated vignettes of life mm -hmm. that happen. And each one... Um, has to be has to be descriptive in a different way, and then finally, right before you get to the epilogue, there are eight bars essentially of modulation, and you start out with uh, uh, the first bar. Well, the last bar of the previous phrase is uh, A flat major, and then the next chord is A flat seven. The next chord is D flat major, and then you have uh, like a C sharp diminished. So I can't remember. You want to play for us? I can't do that. Okay, <laughs> not from memory, not tonight. But it's almost like each measure, you you have to, and I have my students think of a great act, a character actor who can. 
just give you a look and you know mm. exactly what what's going on. And each bar is a different look. So you have the A flat majors like, ah, we've arrived. Mm -hmm. And then the A flat seven is like, oh, that there's something wrong here. And then and then the resolution of that to the D flat major is ah, okay, we're back to, we're we're on track here. And then you have another I think it's a it's a secondary dominant chord that comes next, and that creates more doubt. And then it's like a, a cascading the last four bars are cascading going from doubt to despair to I can't I can't live anymore, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And if you can if you can actually say that in music, then the epilogue makes uh, so much more sense. It's not just a repeat of the prologue. Uh, all of this could also be like some translatable to preaching uh, and storytelling in general. And I, I'm sure other disciplines that require creativity. But you're, you're trying to get to, like, it doesn't just mean, it doesn't mean very much. You say, well, God works all things together for good for those who love him. But instead, you have to get to a place where you, you move through tension. I, I, I like to use this. Um, uh, Eugene Lowry was a preaching professor who I'd never had, but I read his book called The Homiletical Plot. And he starts in a place where you, you um, uh, he says you upset the equilibrium. And then he says you analyze the discrepancy that's involved. But then you give a hint to the clue of resolution. And then you help people see how the gospel resolves those problems. But ultimately, it's like this loop. What you just described is like you're getting into this problem and you're like moving to this place of doubt. And, and so it doesn't always have to lead to a positive place. Like what it might even be like some of the music that you play ends up being this really kind of sits in that doubt, sits in that lack of a place of not having answers before you can move on. I love, but I, just, I think like what you're saying applies to more than just trumpet playing, but really the way we end up telling stories in general so we can communicate a greater truth. True. And a musician actually should be a storyteller. Yes. I don't think most actually succeed in that. It's all about not missing any notes, especially nowadays. Mm. Um, it used to be. Well, I'm really good at that, you know, just not worried. <laughs> well, <laughs> the missing a note thing. <laughs> but I mean, literally, when when Bud was playing, when when Phil Smith was playing, there were two really bright lights up there, and yeah. and it was a uh, it was something for for uh, young and old trumpet players to try to emulate. But literally. After uh, Bud, now almost 20 years ago he retired, and then Phil just a couple of years ago, um, most most of the trumpet players that have gotten jobs the last 10 years or so um, are more inclined to make sure that they get all the notes. Huh. Um, I won't say any names, but in our in our recent principal trumpet audition in Chicago um, there was one guy who played probably the most perfect audition I've ever heard hmm. note wise and he, he did okay dynamics uh, dynamic wise note wise was absolutely perfect but there was no emotion to what he did 
And usually that's enough to win an audition nowadays. But the other guy played with more emotion. I'm not saying a lot, but he played with some emotion. And the choice was essentially clear. So mm-hmm. I teach my students. I mean, really, when it comes to auditions, people, uh, uh, or um, audition committees, want to vote for the person that plays the most musical. Right, that, that makes the them most cry. Energy, yeah. Um, but most most focus today is more on technique and perfection in that way, but not in in the emotion on the emotional side of music and so uh, i love to uh, look i want to make sure we probably don't have much more time but i'd love to have you play a little bit for us here if we want to we have to break so what do you what do you want to well you've been working on hymn tunes here lately so i'd love to love to hear one that it's been helpful to you when you're playing i gotta uh, i'm trying to think of something that's really um melodic the one that I have in my mind is is more of a, a tune that has more harmony in it. Um, and let me just say before I play, one of the things that I've learned about hymn tunes is that, um, or maybe I should say, learned about hymn tunes in relation to God as creator, as inventor, mm-hmm. is that... Um, Music that that we do in church, I think, should be a reflection of the Creator. Mm. And as much as I am a traditionalist when it comes to church music, hymn tunes, there are some that are completely boring, <laughs> um, that are not interesting melodically, that are not interesting harmonically, um, that's not to say that the text is like that, but there are, I mean, when you go back through church church music history, there are periods of time that are really not very interesting. Um, so I usually gravitate to the ones that are really interesting and that reflect, just like we watch the sunset, mm-hmm. that are beautiful and that reflect the character of God or the 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 creativeness of God mm-hmm. in a way that is worthy of, of him. Amen. And whether that has to do with the a beautiful melody or the intricacy of harmony. Um, you know, we talked earlier about the uh, the well is deep. Yeah. And the core the 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 intermovings it's probably one of the of the best examples of inner voices in a in a four-part chorale that are the most interesting because mostly mostly the inner voices are not very interesting mm. you have soprano and bass right. which are interesting and then the the inner two voices are more supportive mm-hmm. fill out the chords but the well is deep the the inner voices are really interesting and course the, the the doctrine in the in the text is as well um, um one of the one of the tunes that i love um i can't think of the words right now fellowship with thee 
just a, a a gorgeous melody not not necessarily similar to most but it's just gorgeous and when you add that to the text oh. um, that's those are the kind of uh, melodies that I, I love to play and a lot of times I'll find my I just sometimes I'll, I'll go up to the stage to warm up and I don't think about what I'm going to play, and mm -hmm. most of the time, I end up starting with a hymn tune. Mm. I, I do that hymn tune a lot, actually. Even at Symphony Hall. At Symphony Hall. And those words are, Lord with my all I part, closer to thee I, I bring, what's that, uh, something like that. Even just those few words, Lord with my all I part, that's enough to kind of set the stage every day. <laughs> yes, I think we, if we all would learn to part with what we want or mm -hmm. our all mm. we would probably be a lot better off for that mm -hmm. mm. and i guess it's uh as your dad said in the when uh he spoke today his officer's covenant covenant is something that he reminds himself of every day mm -hmm. um doing all those things loving the unlovable mm -hmm. helping the the downtrodden taking care of the poor the the hungry you know whatever uh in essence you could probably say that that chorus sums up his ministry yeah yeah it's awesome well i kind of i was i, I wasn't sure if you're just searching for it there so i'm sorry i interrupted you but you got another one that comes to mind you were talking, uh, you mentioned university earlier, Tony. Um, Not going to university. There, uh, I think that's the name of the tune. That's the one at, I think it's the end of um, Call the Righteous. Yeah. Uh, great tune. Um, I can't even tell you what the words are. Um, but it's a great tune, and it's a great reflection of the creator, I mm -hmm. think. Yeah.
you continue the 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 call of righteous. And so on and so on. Yeah. I like to do that. I like to play through the tunes of the great, great pieces like Call the Righteous or Just As I Am. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let me get you uh, to give a few little quick short answers here. So we'll go through um, orchestral music and then um, Savage Army music and kind of like just your quick answers. So who would be your top Savage Army brass composers? The ones that, when you see their piece, I want to play those. Wilfred Heaton. Yes. Is one of the best. Um, early Jim Kernow. Mm-hmm. Eric Ball. Um, interestingly enough, a lot of a lot of my friends love Eric Leitzen music. Mm-hmm. The only Eric Leitzen music I, I think is exceptional are the cornet solos. Wondrous Day. Right. Um, songs in the heart. The yeah, I think those two. Yeah. Everything else that lights and wrote, I I can't. I just can't connect to. Um, and on the opposite side, um, uh, the Stedman Allen Rhapsody. Yeah. Is, is such a deep work. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, I don't find Stedman Allen pieces uh, even close to that. And a he lot has of, moments where he can drop in there. A, a lot of times... Fantasia. Uh, a lot of times, I mean, composers are kind of fickle, and I think it depends on what's happening in their lives, mm-hmm. um, how much time they're willing to spend to, to create um, the perfect piece. I mean, you know... Was it Da Vinci that said when he was carving a statue, it was carving the excess off to allow that beautiful statue to come out of the rock that he was working right, on? Right, Most composers don't really spend the time to create a Da Vinci. They're, they're willing to, you know, just have something that kind of looks like. Mm. Um I mean, it's the same with Beethoven. Beethoven used to slave and la- labor over everything he wrote. Um, and so, I mean, and in today, in today's age, there's this uh, feeling that you know of of writing in volume. Mm-hmm. But there are, to me, I would rather have have a composer spend several months or a year or two years refining something that that he thinks is is an inspiration that he's had yeah as opposed to just whipping it down you know 24 hours before the deadline that it's in and sending it off at the deadline yeah there are way too many pieces that occur like that yeah so okay let me get drop to orchestral so a different type of question you have one chance to play principal on one piece of music with the orchestra. What I can't, pieces I can't pick. Give, give me three. Um, you can, you can, 
quick bullet point list. What's, my, what comes to mind? It's, I'm not going to hold you to it. My my first uh, Mahler six and seven, I okay. just love. Um, Bruckner six. I yeah. know. I know these are kind of off the the beaten path ones, but actually, Bruckner five and six. Yeah. Wow. Are really good. They're really hard. Um. I mean, we the orchestra is known for Strauss. Um, right. That's good. That's good. Thank of, you. Gave me an answer. I appreciate. A lot your of people answer. like our. I know, but I, I want to explain. A lot of people. <laughs> I love to play the E flat part in Heldenleben. Mm. The the two melodic. Um, in the last section, the the two big solos that the E flat part has are just so fun to play and that's why i like to play Mahler seven there's there's an eight bar solo in that that is absolutely the most um at least for me hair raising lick to play Mm. uh it just it's almost like the culmination of that whole section and and the first trumpet gets to to do the the melodies i didn't i thought you might say picture that exhibition because you played that in an award-winning performance with Cincinnati, and I happened to be in the <laughs> audience when that happened. And you, you also played pictures at my wedding as a recessional, if you don't remember. Oh. Yeah, see? But I love I love hearing that answer. Okay, conductor. Wait, wait, I, no, i got to talk about okay. pictures, though. Okay. That's a, a kind of love-hate relationship. Okay. Because the opening is so exposed and requires full attention and the last time i played it i think it was last summer last summer two summers ago um play the first two bars for it just so people know what you're doing in the right key well whatever you want (laughs) just the first okay so i want people people probably to put a it it sounds better on a trumpet not on i'm sorry i'm sorry um uh, we did it at Ravinia, and I won't say who, but um, the person that was playing the um, the euphonium uh, solo in um, oh, it's movement five or six or seven, whatever that is, doesn't play at the very beginning, and so I have the first two bars alone, and the person who's playing first trombone as well is sitting beside me. Messing with the valve. No. Yes. And it's like, be still. <laughs> it's like he had no. He was not aware of what was going on, and it was so distracting. And I didn't play it as well as I want because I was like, stop it. Oh man. <laughs> um, but of that recording, I don't know if you ever heard this story, but one of my students from Roosevelt was. You'll need to unlock your. Oh man. <laughs> Sorry. Touch my <laughs> One of my students was a grad student at, at CCM at the time. And there was another trumpet student from Roosevelt that came down to hear that concert. And um, the first, the, the Thursday night. And um, I have to say that the, the brass players in Cincinnati always thought that the hall was way too big. And it was hard to play in. And... For me, coming from Orchestra Hall, which is the worst hall in the world, <laughs> playing in Cincinnati was a dream. It mm. was big. It was resonant. I loved it. And so we start 
the the last movement, the Great Gate, and I was told that my students up in the in the balcony, uh, one of them was looking around, thinking, "Wow, does anybody realize what's happening here? He can't keep doing what he's doing." Mm. Um, and then um, when you listen literally to the last big tutti where it slows down. Um, it's one of those moments uh, that make me smile because, um, you know, a kid coming from farmland in Pennsylvania yeah. doing what I'm doing is not usual. Yeah. Um, and literally, when I listen to all of, I think there are eight pictures recordings that Bud played. Of course, he had Chicago brass players to to play back yeah. to back well yeah um literally there was i've never heard and i guess this is kind of a cut on me too there was so much room between my sound and everybody else's down below i've never heard that i mean for a trumpet player that's a dream <laughs> it's a to great sound recording. like that and and literally uh, especially once you get to the last A flat and B flat, um, that is a killer. And um, for me personally, it, it's like I can't imagine ever doing what I did there on that recording in Chicago. Hmm. I mean, our trombone section plays and the horns play so much louder. And it's hard to get that separation where the first trumpet just kind of um, blows right over top of the whole orchestra. Yeah, it was it was a a, a fun weekend. I still smile about that. One. <laughs> All right, give me your conductors, conductors quick. Yeah, Manfred Honig is is a very thoughtful and. Um, Where is he normally? He's I'm the sorry. music director in Pittsburgh. Okay. Um, uh, another one that I like. Uh, maybe, maybe for a lot of reasons because I've had the chance to sit down and talk with him a lot. Uh, Simeon Bichkov. Um, he is kind of u universally unliked because he has unusually large lips. Okay. And they're usually chapped. Okay. <laughs> so, and as Where a Russian, conduct, I don't know, normal uh, I don't know if he even has a position anymore. He lives in Paris. He's married to uh, one. Of, I can't remember which one. One of the Lebec sisters, piano duo. Okay. Um, a very very thoughtful man. He does his research. He knows. Seems to know everything about this. The, the the, what was going on when when a piece you know. I think the last time we did something with him was uh, the Manfred Symphony of Tchaikovsky. He reads um, memoirs of composers. He reads uh, history of the time mm -hmm. to really dive into deeply what is going on, what, what is the context yeah. of, of those pieces. And I find that um, rewarding to know that he has the, just like Bud, he had the will to spend the time to right. really learn deeply what what the pieces are that's all a consistent about. theme throughout this whole piece is that like when yeah. you when you had that call of god at asbury 
and to, to really go after them, to pursue excellence, that we're not going to settle, that we're going to try to find the best way to express this and connect with emotion, just like you and I did as we saw the sunset since we've been sitting right here looking over the Mississippi River in your pickup truck, but it's a good place to record. Yes. Mark, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate you take, stopping by Captain's Corner and for the way that you've allowed God to use you and Linda's life and well, mine. thank you. It was, it was great to be a part of your family celebration today and to, to see essentially what has, um, how, maybe should I say, how, how God used my influence or Linda's influence yeah, in the lives of the, specifically in the lives of all those uh, kids, which you were one of when we... We're in desk planes for five years together. Yeah, it was a great time. Yeah, so we were, you know, Mark and his family were the, some of the first soldiers of that corps. I remember walking in, Mark carrying a piano, keyboard. We didn't even have a we didn't even have a keyboard. Carried it in under his arm. Mark had his horn. Mark and the Miller family, and I think one other person started that band. And uh, yes, it's a you know who who would imagine? And now you play uh, you and my brother. Our ensemble, I'm glad, I know he'd want me to get a shout-out for High Bridge Brass, Chris Martin, the principal trumpet in the New York Philharmonic, and Hiram Diaz, and a tuba player from the Marine Band as well. You guys have a conical ensemble. So watch out for that. It's a great group. Um, Mark and Chris make great sounds on that, and my brother, who was in that first band, displays with you. Yes. Tagging along. We enjoy that, and it's great music to listen to because it's it's not heady it's not intellectual it's heart it's right. music of the heart it's music of americana right. well not actually it's not all americana there's some right. british and russian in there but it's it's music of of uh the heart music of the folks and it's an and it, part of what makes that distinct no this could be a long a whole podcast in itself is that you and chris play the cornet with an american style and that makes that 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 record those recordings special. Nathan will argue that there is a, an American style. I just play the cornet <laughs> the way I think it should be played. Awesome. What, what other whatever style that is, uh, I don't. Well, I can't say. It's a scholar for you, musicologist. I mean, some people would say that my cornet playing is not very good because I use a trumpet mouthpiece. Well, there you go. Um, but for me, this works better than a cornet mouthpiece. That's a whole nother podcast. All right. Too. All right. We'll see it. Thanks, Mark. God bless you. Thanks, Andy. If you'd like to learn more about the Salvation Army of Tampa, check us out at tampasa.org and give us a follow on Twitter at Sal Army Tampa. And of course, go ahead and subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.